was Theron mentioned, we're launching into Job. Uh, there are some notebooks if you want to take uh, notes going through it uh, on this book. We try to do that with each book study, a walk through reality. And that's what Job really is. Uh, I'll be honest, studying Job uh, is not the easiest book uh, to dive into. It doesn't always leave you uh, with that uh, uplifted, bright, the sun is shining feeling uh, in your heart and soul. It's a bit melancholy. Uh, it's a bit tough uh, to read and walk through, but, but it's a book that is very real. Uh, it's a book that, that deals with um, not the fluff of life, but instead uh, the tough parts of life. And so we're going to walk through this book, and you might say, oh no, Kenny just did verses one through five. How long will he be in this series? And I, and I know that that comes up. I heard about Back in the 1700s, a guy preached 423 messages on Job. Uh, he was in Job for 20 years. Uh, there's only one person left in his church after that. Just kidding. I have no idea. Uh, and he said he hadn't plumbed all the depths of it. That is not my intention. Uh, as we look at the beginning, uh, which is an introduction, which is actually highly critical in understanding the book, uh, as we get into the middle portion, the dialogue, we're going to be moving through, instead of five verses, a lot of times, maybe four or five chapters, and, and the style of preaching will tweak a little bit as we work through what it means. And so I mentioned the notebook, taking notes. Uh, if you're someone who, who dots down ideas in your Bible, and that oftentimes helps me because I'm, I'm hoping that through this study, we'll, we'll walk through Job and get the idea. And, and it's a book, and I'll talk more about this, but it's a book, yes, that deals with suffering. Uh, but that is the ingredient of what God is trying to get out of that, and that's faith and trust in him. Uh, it's trusting him, even though we may not understand everything or have the insight or be giving the backstory. Now, we're given the backstory uh, in Job, and that's what we're diving into right now. Uh, one of the reasons I wanted to spend time on verses one through five starting out is because it is the introduction to Job, and it's, it's critical. Uh, next week, we're going to work through four scenes, and I'll mention this, it's chapter 1, verse 6, all the way through chapter 2, verse 10. We're going to see everything that's going to happen, the drama unfold, and this is the back scene look that we're given by God that Job and his friends don't have any idea of. Uh, however, it is critical to understand who Job is because that's going to play a massive part in the conversations that unfold because his friends don't know who he is in the end. Uh, we're going to see how um, dangerous they were in the sense that they get really close, but they're off. And that's sometimes the most dangerous theology that can be out there. Uh, it's Satan's playground, actually, to be really close to truth, but off. Uh, because oftentimes we'll pick up on the worst, but we don't necessarily pick up on that stuff that's close. And so our, our journey through Job is going to take us through uh, the range of emotions. We are going to understand what it feels like to live this out. And Job's life is there for us to learn that. Uh, but this morning, we're dealing with a man named Job. That's the, the context. It's the introduction. I put here, how good are you with introductions? Or more importantly, how well do you remember who someone is, uh, specifically their name, after they've been introduced to you? I'm the worst at that. So if you come walking up to me and I don't know you, Instead of listening to you say your name and something about yourself, I'm already thinking about what I can say to you. I'm going to start conversing with you. And so that's why a lot of times I refer to people as, hey, man, you, or with kids, hey, buddy. So if you hear that, I hate to admit this, I probably don't know your name. Um, 
I know your face. I know who you are. I can picture all that. But uh, if it's a hey man situation, then you might say, hey, Kenny, my name is, you know, this is what it is and write it down. If I see it written, I don't ever forget it. If I hear it said, it goes in one ear and out the other. Uh, I tried to push myself. I worked uh, for many years uh, in kid, kids ministry and, and it's horrible to forget a kid's name, right? It's nothing worse than a kid feels awful if you don't know their name. And so I realized that I was just destroying kids' lives by forgetting their names. And so I decided to start something new. I used to give out candy if I forgot their name or even mispronounced their name. And so it turned what was bad into something good uh, because every kid wanted me to forget their name because I owed them candy. Um, I thought about doing that with adults, but I just hate for you to be desperate for candy. So I thought, well, we'll do something different. Well, we were teaching and we had these, uh, this family come in and there was two boys, identical twin boys in our Wednesday night children's program. And by identical, I mean... I could not tell them apart. As you can tell, I'm not the most perceptive, but either way, I think everyone thought they were identical. Their names were Makai and Mael, and I could not keep them apart to save my life. I want to be honest with you. I couldn't remember their names. Shocked Heather, I said, you remember the twin boys, Makai and Mael? She's like, you remember their names? That was her first reaction uh, to this. Well, one of those boys would test me every Wednesday night. Before anything started, I'm standing there in La La Land watching kids play. And sure enough, one of those boys would swoop in front of me and say, what's my name? <laughs> and here's what, what got me. I would be like, uh, Makai. He's like, Ugh. and then I realized after five weeks, it took me a while. Makai's the only one asking me his name. <laughs> Stick with Makai. And I thought to myself, still smarter than a first grader. That's, <laughs> that's where I was on this one. They never thought to mix it up on me. Uh, they had an older brother named Jameer, and I would say Jameer, and he says, oh, you mispronounced it. It's Jameer, he would tell me. I said, no, no, you don't get candy for that. Either way, had some fun with introductions. Why do I say all that? Because I want us to get this idea that this introduction to Job is critical, and we don't want to miss anything about a man named Job or neglect the process or neglect to process any of the details surrounding it. Uh, in the first part of Job, chapters 1 and 2, you're led into, one, a very detailed introduction about a guy. Um, verses 1 through 5, we know his life. We, we understand his family. We understand his business. We understand his character. And we're going to talk about that today. As we work through the rest of 1 and 2, we're going to look at his situation. Uh, we're going to be introduced to not only Job, but other crucial actors. And I'll use that word on the stage. And we're going to actually meet God and we're going to meet Satan in the storyline, and we're going to see a scenes in heaven, and we're going to see scenes on earth back and forth. And, and we need to make sure we get a grip of what is said there. So this week and next week, as we deal with those, we're going to be looking at this backstory, the introduction, and then the backstage pass that we're given to see what takes place. We know ultimately what the human actors never know. Job's friends and Job never understand what we already are given. So in God's infinite wisdom, we get a sneak peek. Here's the reality of life, though. In your own life, you don't get the sneak peek. So as we're looking at Job and then we walk with Job through his, his journey, and it's quite the journey emotionally, uh, verbally, 
we're going to learn and, and, and be able to apply what we know to his situation while understanding that if we were walking through something like this, we don't get to see the backstory. And so these chapters actually answer the questions that Job is asking. They solidify his confusion that is expressed then in chapters 3 through 37. And these chapters, very importantly, expose the error of the friend's advice and more importantly, exposes their worldview. So when you think of a worldview, it's how you see the world, how you think the world functions. Uh, You've maybe heard us say before, you need to have a biblical worldview. And if you want to be more specific, you need to have a worldview that's God's worldview. You need to see the world in life as God sees it. And what you're going to see is by chapters one and two are going to expose the faulty worldview of Job's friends, how they're they're misrepresenting life and they're misrepresenting God. Actually, at the end of Job, God says to the three friends, how would you like this? You have not represented me well, and I'm basically going to annihilate you unless Job sacrifices for you. How would you like to be the guys that told Job he's a horrible person and he deserved to lose his kids? And at the end of which God says, if he doesn't sacrifice for you, you're done for. Job obviously does sacrifice for him and we see a complete change at the end. The middle of this book is full of poetry. That's why I mentioned uh, scribbling some notes in your Bible. So when you come back, you can maybe understand it. And that's why it's going to preach a little different because I feel like it'll be important uh, not to, to... locked down on it, but it's highly poetic language that that is designed to paint a picture and poetry. And and I've said this before, I'm a a, a narrative guy. I like stories, novels. When I was in college, not college, I think it was in college, in high school, and they made you read Shakespeare, I'm like, this is awful. Um, When I hear British preachers preach and they use Shakespeare illustrations, I'm checking out. I'm like, yeah, whatever, dude, get on with it. Because I'm I'm not a poetry guy. Uh, I realize it's what it accomplishes. And so maybe you're the same as I am. Well, you need to dive into the poetry to understand the emotion because poetry conveys an emotion and a depth that you cannot do uh, in regular prose. And so you're going to see a depth and a picture painted in less words than it would take to explain it. And so we're going to kind of dive into that walking through it. But here's the thing we have to keep in mind. We know the answer. We know what took place. So as Job is saying, why in the world are you doing this to me, God? He says in one time, give me a chance to spit. Basically, give me a breather. Why is God on my back like this? Why can't he give me some space? We know the backstory. The only thing, quote unquote, that we don't know up front is whether or not Job is going to stay faithful to God, whether he's going to curse God or he's going to at least stay close to him. And what's interesting is uh, Job doesn't curse God, but he gets awfully close to it. You get into the dialogue chapters and he, he gets dangerously close to the edge to blasphemy, but he doesn't cross the line. Instead, we're going to watch him speak with words that, in all honesty, one writer said this, they're modern words. They're words that would come out of our own mouths. This is how we would talk on a situation. And why is that? It's because it's a cry of a hurting heart to God. Uh, Don't miss this as you read Job, though. Who does he keep crying to? God. He always is crying to God, and the direction of his cry is a critical component of understanding Job. Ultimately, though, Job proves God's point to Satan, and we'll talk more about this next week. Uh, Satan is going to come accuse and say, well, people only serve you because you give them presents, 
You give them good things. And God says, no, they serve me because I'm God. And Job, in a, in a unique way, if you want to look at God and Satan arguing, and this is a dangerous uh, uh, illustration sometimes because we have a very dualistic view of God and Satan. We think there's almost two gods fighting it out. And that's not the case. God is all powerful. Satan is not. But as you look at this battle unfolding, it's almost like God steps back and puts Job in his place. He tags out and says that Job's going to prove my point. Job's going to prove me by his life. And so it's a fascinating look. And Job does that. Uh, Job remains under the wing of his God, uh, though he often wonders if he really should be there, if there's any point in being there. Uh, Job shows that he loved God because of who God is and not just what God gives. Uh, Beyond that, Job shows us that how we handle life matters eternally. Job is going to tell us that one person does make a difference. Sometimes we look and say, what does it really matter what my life's about? And then the eons and the big purpose of God. And God through Job is telling everyone in the world, it does matter what one person does. Individual faith makes a difference. Philip Yancey notes this, that at the moment when faith is hardest, and least likely than faith is most needed. Job's struggle presents a glimpse of the remarkable truth that our choices matter, not just to us and our own destiny, but amazingly to God himself and the universe he rules. He's still a sovereign God. He stays sovereign through it all. But is it not fascinating that he includes us in how he handles his universe? That we are woven in, that we matter, We shouldn't matter. Angels look in and say, why in the world do humans matter? And they long to understand it. They can't fathom it. And in Job, what you're going to see is God showing. Even in the fact that he puts Job in his place, he tags out, so to speak, of the wrestling ring and puts Job in. And Job then proves the point. Job wins that battle. And it tells us something. God uses us individually and uniquely that we matter, that our faith matters, that our endurance matters. It makes a difference. Job tells us also that more is going on than we can physically see around us. There's more than meets the eye, so to speak. It's more than your temporal existence. It's more than what's going on in this world, that there's an eternal struggle out there. There are people that take that way too far and they're in la-la crazy land. And then there's some of us and I land I find myself drifting in this direction. I discount any spiritual warfare or anything going on because I like to deal with what I can see. And Job strikes this beautiful balance of showing us that there's more going on than we can see, that there's more to life than this life, that eternity matters. And what you do here matters for eternity. And in dealing with all of that, Job teaches us a very critical point that you need to trust God, no matter what. We live in a very skeptical society, actually a society that might maybe looks a lot like um, these friends. You hear people talking about karma and all that stuff circling around. A lot of the friends advice sounds a lot like karma. If you're good, good will happen to you. If you're bad, bad will happen to you. It's all going to come around in the end. And Job is teaching us that you trust God no matter what. That when someone can throw up all the evidence they want, it's hard to do air quotes when you can't move your other hand. As I I told everyone, I'm I'm T-Rexing it with the right hand. 
I had Clayton tell me, he says, Dad, you can still move your hand. And he pins his one hand. He says, you can do this. And I'm like, oh. So I took my brace off and tried to move my hand around like the doctor said. And, and he looked and says, you can just do this. Yeah, he said, that's all you're, that's all you're able to do. All that to say is that you, you're going to trust God no matter what. No matter what evidence the world throws out and says, well, there you go. God's proved wrong. God's not right. There's evil. You're going to see evil. There's the problem of evil. There's no God. There's this. And Job is going to teach us that you trust God no matter what. So as we launch into Job, as we're introduced to this central character in the story, and I would say this, I'm using this from a human perspective. Who is the central character in the story? Ultimately, it's God. Because Job is proving God's point. Job is walking through a trial that God allowed. Job is showing that he loves God for who God is. Job is showing who is most important in this world, and it's God. But from a human perspective, who is this about? Well, it's a story about Job. And so we're introduced uh, to that central character here, a story of a man named Job. And we need to pay attention to the details of who he is and what takes place. I want you to realize and see this before you close out this morning, that Job is the picture of about as good of a guy as you can get. And I mean good, not just a good old boy guy, but I'm talking a godly person who has dedicated his life to the Lord. He is the illustration of all that is possibly good to happen here. And that's important as he walks through the struggle and his friends attack him and say, you're not blameless. Well, God said he was. You're not upright. And he says, well, God says, they're going to accuse him of of bad relationships and cheating people. But God's going to say he never cheated anybody. And they're going to say, you're not blameless. God doesn't do this to to people that are blameless. And God's already said he's blameless. So it's important to understand that. Why? So we can actually understand and apply the journey he ultimately goes through. And so we begin with the statement, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And right out of the gate, we are introduced to Job's reality. Because as I describe him, you're going to say, this is a neat superhero, Kenny. If the Christian faith was going to pick a superhero, they would pick Job because verses one through five look a lot like a superhero, look a lot like who'd you pick to handle this. And we have to understand this. We need to connect to Job's reality. This was not a fable or folklore, but is the true account of an actual person that lived on earth. Even though it has a fairy book start, right? Once upon a time, there was da-da-da-da-da. And this is a once upon a time, there was a man named Job who lived in Uz. By the way, this would have been written before the fairy tale, so they're just copying Job. Ezekiel 14, 14 and 20 make reference to Job. He's used as an example of righteousness along with Noah and Daniel. You want to doubt Job's real existence? Then you doubt Noah's real existence. Then you doubt Daniel's real existence. It says this, though these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in it, They should deliver but their own souls by their righteousness, saith the Lord God. And Ezekiel speaking of punishment and things that are coming. And he says, even if the most righteous people I can list, Noah, Daniel, and Job were here, then they would only deliver their soul. Verse 20 is a repeat of that pretty much. But what it talks about is the fact that Job existed, that he was real. He was not a mythological figure. He wasn't something invented by God as a a brief story to make a point. He's a real person. That truth of Job's reality is helpful. Why is that? We know that what he does and feel are not invented emotions for a mythological personality. This is not a made-up story. 
When he, in, verse, in chapter 3, is crying to God in a lament, by the way, is one of the darkest chapters in Scripture. He plums the depth of non-existence as saying, why in the world am I around? And, and we walk through that emotion. That's not just God writing some poetry. That's God writing some poetry about a real man's life that he worked through Job. And this is Job expressing that emotion. And we'll walk through that. This is how real people walk through real life. No pretense, no cover up, just to walk through reality and how doing so can honor and glorify our Savior and Lord. I'm going to say this over and over as I walk through Job. I never walk or read Job and walk out saying, whoo, I feel like I'm on cloud nine. But I do know it's reality. And I do want to get the point out of it. And it's not just how to suck it up and handle suffering. It's how you walk through life and glorify your God, how you glorify your Lord and Savior, how you trust him even when you don't understand. It's the reality of the Christian walk. This truth is also scary because we know an actual person experienced this awful suffering and we have to grapple with that fact. It's a helpful truth, but it's a scary truth. Now, I think it's good to note this as we embark on Job, that Job was a unique man displaying amazing godliness and singular blessing and influence. Only one other person suffered more than he did. And for a more unjustified reason, and that was Jesus Christ. Job points to what it means to suffer unjustly. Job foreshadows and points to Christ. And actually, uh, I remember reading one author that says this, Job makes no sense unless there's a Savior coming to die on the cross for our sins. Job is just a horrific story unless it points to a Savior that will redeem us. And you're going to see Job cry out for his advocate, for his redeemer, to want his chance in court, to need someone to speak for him. Who speaks for us? Christ speaks for us. Whose blood covers our sins? His blood. And so you're going to see Job constantly being that kind of an example. And he's the extreme example of how we walk through unexplainable suffering while ultimately learning God's perspective and glorifying his name. Why do I say that? There's no one in this world that's going to end up suffering like Job. He is the extreme example of human suffering. I put as an action step here, Christianity is cheap and easy when everything marches along without a hurdle and pain. When we sit in life and have and, and, and been buffered ourselves away from this, and Job is, is removing, uh, I call it the fluff. That's the whole point when you go through Job. To get rid of the fluff of life is not designed to make us depressed and down. Uh, I mention this because it, it, it brings a darkness in my mind when I read it. It's hard. This is not an easy book to read. It's not an easy book uh, to study. It's not an easy book to preach. It's not an easy book to listen, preach, but it's a necessary book because when life is easy and cheap, Christianity is easy and cheap. And you know what we tend to do? We tend to find some trivial problem that we can pretend are our struggles, which of course we overcome and maintain a shallow and materialistic connection to the one true God. And here's the interesting thing. It's like a prosperity gospel of sorts. I have my small little problem of nothingness that I overcome. Oh, I overcome this big problem in life. It's all fabricated. I mentioned this, a friend of mine said it, and and it's not, he didn't mean anything by it, but uh, he was delayed uh, by 10 days to get to Nick Rogwood. He says, I know what Job feels like. And I had to bite my fingers and say, no, you don't. 
because missing a flight, facing lack of sleep, struggling with some slight discomfort is not a significant trial of life. It's not the reality of life. And I say that not to minimize small problems, but to let you realize that that's not the reality that you'll walk through. Significant trials are what Job experienced, the kind that are hard to understand, where they're hard to see God and why in the world he's doing it. It's hard to continue worshiping him as God. Those are trials. And Job speaks to that. Job is going to walk us through real life and what it feels to face real life. And here's the beautiful thing about Job. And and I've said this before. I'm like, well, when they face real life, they'll understand. They have no idea what real life looks like. And you know, I hate that thought because when I read Job, I don't want to go through what Job went through. I don't want to wake up and find out that I've lost my children. I don't want to find out that everything in life is gone And by the way, he gets a disease, and we oftentimes minimize that disease. I heard one preacher say this. If you want to compare it to a disease, it was like a death sentence. Think of AIDS. Think of that on a heap outside on the ash heap. You're not even allowed to be in town anymore because you're you're viewed as contagious and terrible. He's going to get to the point where he's got almost nothing less except for the fact the last torture is that he can't die. And so as we look at this and this pain and this suffering, and, and here's the beautiful thing about Job, they're walking us through so we can get a grip of reality before or maybe even so we can avoid walking through that reality. So it's like, well, before you can grow in your Christian walk, before you can go past your shallow, you're going to have to experience something horrible. Well, instead, God gives us this beautiful piece of literature, this book, this real story about a real person so that we can grow in our faith, that we can understand reality That we can connect to people that are walking through this for real. And instead of coming to them and say, I know how you feel. I know how you feel. That's the worst scenario, right? When someone is walking through the worst of life and you walk up with, I know how you feel. I miss my flight. No, you don't. But you can know how they feel if you can connect to who Job is. If you can connect to his suffering. Now you can know how they feel. When someone is, is so anxious that they can barely get through the day, if someone's walking through the darkness of depression, when someone's walking through the loss of family, uh, I, I think of uh, Mrs. Tinoco, our, our director's wife. Our director died of COVID this year. Two months later, her son died of cancer. Now, how in the world does she pick her head up in the morning? And how in the world do I walk to her and say, I know how you feel? Because I've not experienced that at all, but only by getting into the book of Job and understanding this man's pain and how he walked through it, will I be able to come alongside a brother and sister in Christ that's walking through something that is real. Why do I keep saying all this? If you've got some shallow problem, keep it to yourself. Get into the book of Job and get real because this shallow, easy Christianity is not Christianity at all. It's just a, it's just a twisted form of prosperity gospel. You're, you're deceiving yourself. See, Job was a uniquely godly and wealthy person, but he was a real person. And so his story of loss will confront us with why we believe in God and worship him. Because to be honest with you, Job was left with no external reason to believe in God. Even his own wife says, curse God and die. Forget it. Be done with this, Job. It's not worth it. And Job doesn't do that. 
Because Job's answering a question for us. Why do you worship God? And here's the question. Do you worship God because of all his presence? How God gives us the material life we want? Or do you worship God because he is God? Is your worship contingent on feeling well, being healthy, having finances, having my hobbies, having my life? And if we lose that, then suddenly we lose our worship or do you worship God because he is God? You see, the book of Job is not just about suffering, though suffering is the main ingredient of the book. What it really addresses is our faith and trust in God. Job is going to test the metal of your faith. It's going to confront you, if you allow it to, to examine your life and see if you are a prosperity gospel Christian or if you really worship God because he's God. Does God warrant that because of who he is? Job proves that point, that God warrants worship because he's God. Now, being a real person that lived and worked at a specific time in history, we know that then he had to live in a specific place, which brings us to Job's location. Job lived in Uz. It's an easy town to pronounce. It's got two letters. If they went beyond that, I'd have a struggle, right? Now, the likely location of the city and area, because it's not just a city. If you think of society back then, agriculture took place all around it. You would live in the city, but you'd have to be able to feed and care for that city. Uh, it's hard to ascertain exactly, but a lot of people think it was in the land of Edom, east of the promised land. Thus, when he's the greatest man of the east, it's in relation to east of where God's chosen people would live. It was a land with plentiful pastures, parts suitable for cultivation, and likely near the desert. One writer thinks that it is the Wadi Siran, which is southeast of Jebel Edrus. All that to say this, they found a place that is about 210 miles long, 20 miles wide, that actually fits all the descriptions. Here's the actually most important thing to recognize about us. And Christopher Ashe notes this. He says, the exact whereabouts of the city or area are not the most critical. Instead of highest importance is where it is not. And notice what I said. It's east of the promised land. And what you need to know is that Job did not live in the promised land. He was not an Israelite and did not have the benefit of the promises to Abraham or any of the special revelation to Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob. Though most people think he would have been a contemporary of them. It was before the law. It was before the priesthood. He would have functioned like Melchizedek would have functioned. And he, he would have functioned as Abraham. So Abraham would be from the same lineage. And we don't know exactly generation what it would be. But it was the time of the patriarchs. But understand this. Job was not part of that calling to Abraham. Nor of all the information given to Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and down the line. Why is that important? Why is that significant? Well, that truth is very connective because then Job represents all of humanity. We don't read Job and say, yeah, that's great, but that story belongs to the Jewish people. We read Job and say that story belongs to all people. Job speaks to all of us without exception. His reality is our reality. And we have to grapple with the same questions of suffering and evil it's a connective truth. And then here's the other part of his truth. That truth is wonderful because I want you to realize something. 
Job does not have the promises given to Abraham. And by the way, if you've gone through our study of Genesis, you realize how little information Abraham had. And so let me connect that to limited information that he had and Job had less. He has a very limited knowledge of God, but God, but Job still knew God and trusted and worshiped him because he was God. Let me rewind again. He has a very limited knowledge of God, yet he still worshiped God as God and trusted him because he was God. What's the point of saying that? How often do we excuse our doubt or justify it because we feel God should reveal more about himself? God should tell me more about himself. God should tell me more about the story. God should make this clear. God should answer my why. God had better do this. If God wants me to trust him, he had better do this. And when you come to the story of Job, you have a God that knows very, very little about God. Yet what he does know about God is connected to knowing God and worshiping him because he is God. He still trusted and worshiped him. So his story stands as a rebuttal to every skeptic or cynic out there who claims there is not enough knowledge of God to serve and worship him as God. I think it was Bertrand Russell said this. If I get to heaven, someone asked him, if, I, if you get to heaven and find out there's actually a God, what would you say? And he makes some bombastic statement like, I would say not enough evidence, God. And you know what God could do? Not that he has to answer him. He'd say, read Job. You don't have enough evidence. You live in the 17, 1800s. Job had all the evidence he needed. Romans 1 is the answer to all of that. That, that. that we know enough about God. And Job screams that. He answers every cynic that says, I should know more about God. And Job answers back, you know enough. You know more than I would ever know. His story confronts our own excuse that we need God to reveal more before we can fully obey and serve him. Job, in the land of us, puts that rebuke to us. I put, so what excuse have you been making for not trusting and obeying God? And do you think it would stand against the Job test? Do you dare to take your excuse for not obeying and not serving God and then walk to the book of Job and, and read that he lives in the land of us, not an Israelite, not in the promised land, not the chosen people, not much knowledge about God, and you think your excuse will stand against his life. But Job is not just a real guy that lived in a real place that was not Israel. He lived in a way that glorified God, a truth that drives us to see Job's character. And that man was perfect and upright and one that feared God and eschewed evil. And this description of Job's character, by the way, was not some look at when he was making sacrifice, but instead described his full character. This is what he did all the time. This was constant. Let me walk through this, um, and I guess I better get cranking. He was perfect, and the idea is blameless. Now, I want you to note something here. This is not speaking to sinless perfection. Job never claimed sinlessness and actually admits to being a sinner in his own words as you work through the later chapters. But as you look at him, you realize that he was blameless. And the idea is integrity. And what does that mean? It's being the same on the outside and inside. You act and talk the same on Monday as you did on Sunday. There's no difference in how you communicate. You don't walk in the church and clean up your speech and then walk out and do whatever you want. You don't come in here and pretend to be something and then out in the world you're something different. And look, we've seen this. And what is the opposite of blameless? Hypocrisy. 
being a fraud. And we love to pigeonhole hypocrisy to the Pharisees. And sadly, we limit hypocrisy when we pigeonhole it to the Pharisees because we're super hypocritical. Anytime you're different on the inside as you are on the outside, you're a hypocrite. I guess if you're being honest, we all have hypocrisy woven in us. But, but God's word is telling us something about Job. He did not. It meant that Job's action matched his heart. One writer notes this, Job had the appearance of godliness because there was real godliness in his heart. That's what it means by blameless. True to the core. You don't cut into Job and say, ah, there's the junk metal. I knew it was on the outside, looked good. It was painted up nice. But in the end, it was just slag and, and waste. No, when you cut through Job, it's pure all the way through. That's what God's word says about him. This is a critical fact, by the way, because his friends are going to deny that he's blameless. Even though God is going to confirm it, Job will repeatedly claim this for himself. And it's true because even God confirms it. And even though doubt is cast against him, we know that he is blameless. Scripture is going to make that point abundantly clear. Beyond that, he was upright. Now, this is the idea of being upright touches on your relationship with other people. So one is integrity. Blamelessness deals with your integrity, who you are. You're the same inside and out. You have integrity of heart. What you are, people see. What people see is what you are. Now you come to being upright. Now this is how you interact with people. This means that Job was someone who kept his word, dealt fairly and justly with others. You could do business with Job because he would not double cross you. He wouldn't cheat someone out of their wages. He wouldn't take advantage over someone. By the way, his friends are going to accuse him of this as well. They're going to say, you've cheated people. You've hurt widows. You've stolen their pension. You've made life difficult. You found ways to cut the corners. You found the loopholes. And here's the thing that God is making very clear before we ever start in the book, before we ever hear anything the friends say, Job never did that. He was reverent, one that feared God. This is the idea of religion and faith. And I want you to realize when, when someone feared God, it was talking about not being flippant or casual about God or toward God. He honored God as God and gave thanks for him, bowing in submission to God. Job desired to please God in all that he knew of God. Christopher Ash notes this as well. Job was, in the very best sense of the word, a genuinely religious man. Now, that has gotten a bad rap nowadays. Someone's religious, and we check it off as, as hip, hypocritical, right? That's what our world loves to say. Oh, it's a religious person. And it's done with a negative connotation. But in the very best sense of the word, his faith was real. He was reverent toward God. And, and, and last but not least, he was moral he eschewed evil, and that meant he turned away from evil. So yes, Job walked the straight and narrow path. But when I say he turned from evil, the idea in Hebrew is very broad. Uh, it shows a repentant heart. This is really important. Because when I say someone walks the straight and narrow, most people think, oh, it's an uppity, self-righteous person. They don't think they get near sin. You know, they walk above the mud. That's not at all what that word means. When he eschewed evil, it meant he turned away from evil. He rejected evil. It doesn't mean he acted like evil didn't exist or that he would never be tempted with evil. 
Instead, it spoke of a repentant person, not a self-righteous person. Job was not a pretender acting as if he never was tempted with sin. Instead, he lived in reality, knowing the temptation to sin was constant and he remains vigilant to resist it. Nothing is more useless than a self-righteous person acting like sin doesn't bother them. What good is that? Because all I know is when I walk out, sin bothers me. There's temptation. Job is not this fake fraud of a person, but instead he's a person who's vigilantly ready to resist sin. He says it in Job 31.1. He says, I made a covenant with mine eyes. Why then should I think upon a maid? And he deals with one of the most basic of temptations that's out there and actually talks about it with his friends. He says, no, I'm not an immoral person because I know temptation is out there and I made a covenant that I would resist temptation and sin. I would make an effort. So not only did he walk the straight and narrow path, he was a moral person. He was a real moral person. He was a guy that could encourage you to resist temptation. He could walk you through it. He could help you overcome. Here's the takeaway I have here. Take a long look at his character and ask yourself honestly, could this describe me? Could this describe me? Ask yourself that. And then secondly, and I want to assume that you've been honest here. So first, so I'm going to get you on this one, because if you said this could describe me, I'm hoping this one zings you. If you've been honest with yourself, ask if you would want to be described like that. I'm assuming that if you're being fair, you're not Job-esque yet. It's a goal, not an achievement. Because here's a man with the highest level of godliness, the highest level of living day-to-day for Christ, for God. Not a fraud, not a pretender, not self-righteous, but instead a person who says, I know the reality of temptation and I've already made a decision to resist that temptation. Would this describe you? Now, why is it important to see all this about Job? And I'll mention this even at the end. His character is going to become critical in carrying him through the battle he's about to face. This character quality in Job is what's going to set the foundation to walk through the struggle. Why is that critical? Why am I saying, look at his character and then ask, do you really want to be like him? Because you need that kind of Christian character if you're going to walk through suffering in a way that is eternally significant. That's going to make a difference in the universe and in this world, a difference for Christ. You're going to need his character. The picture of Job, I think, is beginning to fill out in front of us. And we see a man destined for greatness, which leads us to Job's position. And he was the greatest. It says, this man was the greatest of all the men of the East. Let's read about him. And there were born unto him seven sons and three daughters. His substance also was 7,000 sheep. By the way, that word for sheep is sheep and goats. It's little cattle in Hebrew, which means sheep and goats. And 3,000 camels and 500 yoke of oxen. That's 1,000 for plowing and 500 female donkeys and a very great household so that this man was the greatest of all the men of the East. And again, you see all the directional stuff. He is in the land of Uz, which is east of the promised land. And he's the greatest of the people who lived in the East. And so there's no comparison to Abraham or anything like that. It's just telling you from everyone that's not an Israelite, this is the greatest of people. I want to touch on a few things. He had a full house. 
Psalm 127, 3 through 5. I'm not going to read the whole verse uh, all out there, but basically children are a blessing. Uh, you want a quiver full of them. Job had a quiver full of kids. Uh, seven sons was a, a significant number. It spoke to completeness. Even in Ruth, uh, Ruth was as or better than seven sons. And so you read completion and then three daughters. You say, where do they come in? Well, if you want to go from one good number to another good number, you go from seven to 10. And so the three carries them to 10. Why is that critical? It speaks to their culture of an ideal family. Job had it all. The seven sons, which was considered so important in the pastoral culture, and then three daughters to carry to the number 10. And and you you have this family that is seemingly perfect. And actually in four and five, we're going to see harmony and respect in that family, uh, what they look like they were. Now, along with his ideal number of children, we see he had abundant wealth, 7,000 sheep and goats. I just processed that a little bit. That's a lot of sheep and goats. 3,000 camels. What are camels good for? Well, think about what people use camels for, for a caravan. What do you do with the caravan? You go out and get supplies back. So now you're looking at Job in an agricultural society. You say, man, that's the biggest farmer I could ever imagine. On top of farming, the man ran a business of import and export. How much can you haul on 3,000 camels? I don't know. I've never loaded a camel up. I'm assuming it's a decent amount he's a businessman. He's not just a farmer. This guy's running a quite an enterprise and an international one to boot 500 pairs of oxen. That's a thousand of them for plowing. That's a lot of land you can plow with a thousand oxen. And then the 500 female donkeys, they hauled the produce. So if you start thinking about it, I start thinking of farm to warehouse to get it out. And so you have these female donkeys that are used both for hauling back and forth, but also for milk production. So he's built himself quite an empire. Beyond that, he had a very great household. In other words, they didn't even want to bother talking about how many people were working for him or his servants to manage and work the animals, the land, and the business. And so he was the greatest and richest of all the leaders around. And here's the point I want to make. Here is a man who is influential He is a man who was sought after, who had the status of a king. And in that society, he would have been looked at as a king. When I mention Melchizedek, I do that on purpose, because when you look at the story of Melchizedek, you see the king of Salem. And when you look at Job, he's functioning as a king in his society. He was blessed, but I want you to realize that blessing came with quite the number of responsibilities that demanded his attention. He ran a massive farm. He had a huge caravan, import, outport, import, export business. This guy was dealing with things nonstop. Yet those responsibilities and blessings did not interfere with his faith or the practice of it. So here's the catch for us. Do we use God's blessing and gifts as an excuse to neglect worship and practice our faith? Job's wealth is listed to show that he's extremely blessed But then you watch what he does and nothing that he has affects what he does for God. And I'm going to say this because we've all used this excuse. I've got to do this. I've got to do that. I have this responsibility. I have this pressure and I have this weight and I have this to do. And this is more important than worshiping God. And Job is going to confront you and say, no, it's not because he had way more than you. You want to put him in status situation? And I haven't seen anyone venture a guess. I'm throwing him out as a billionaire 
This guy is beyond wealthy. And I know when we think of a billionaire, we think of a life of ease. But what you don't realize is a billionaire is a billionaire for a reason. Because they make billionaire decisions. They're not getting lucky. They work hard. I'm not saying all of them. But a lot of them worked hard for their money. They're faced with a lot of things coming in. And you notice something about Joe being a billionaire in this scenario is that none of those responsibility blessings would negate his worship. Because as we'll notice, Job was the most focused in the exercises of his faith. A truth we see now in Job's practice. This is verses four and five. And his sons went and feasted in their houses, everyone his day, and sent and called for their three sisters to eat and to drink with them. And it was so when the days of their feasting were gone about that Job sent and sanctified them. He sent for them. They came to him and then he would sanctify them. He was functioning as the family priest, the, the patriarch in the family. And that's how worship functioned then. And rose up early in the morning and offered burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus did Job continually. I want you to realize something. His sons were there. When he's saying this, maybe you've had a bad attitude in your heart. Those sons are being taught by Job and the daughters what it means to be sincere in your faith. See, this is some of the function of Job's family. I mentioned the harmony and unity before. I'm going to kind of fast forward through all my notes that I've written here because I know I'm tight on time. But basically, I want you to recognize something about his family. These are not a bunch of partiers and rich kids doing whatever they want. We, we kind of see that and people have painted them the wrong way. The feast that they're hosting is most likely their birthday. It's a seven-day feast, and it wasn't atypical for that time. It would have been something that someone at that status would do. What's fascinating is who they invited, their family. They wanted their family there. Their sisters were most likely unmarried and living in Job's house, and they were included in this. Job is not seen as being at these feasts because he's focused on their faith. And so Job is thinking about the spiritual side of things and he wanted no flippant or arrogant thought to go unatoned. His attention was fixated on his role of priest for the family. And we noticed that he was serious about it because after the feasting, Job sent for them and sanctified them. So he says, after it's done, he's not nagging them while they're enjoying a feast. He calls them to him and then they rise up early in the morning and he offers a burnt offering for every one of them. And Job doesn't do a mass burning like light the, light the fire, let's burn seven of these babies and knock it down and get this over with. Individually, he sits there and he explains to each child, I'm burning this burnt offering because sin warrants God's wrath and I'm going to put God's wrath then on this sacrifice and not on you. And so what you see is a man fixated on the faith of his household. It was serious to him. He wanted to make sure they understood the weight of faith. And his kids would have known that. You also notice that this is not a one-time occurrence. It happened every time that they would have a feast. And, and you see a man who is diligent, serious, and then he's diligent. Thus did Job, Job continually. He was faithful in offering sacrifice, faithful in keeping that necessity in front of his children. Why? Because continual sacrifice was required until the Son of God came and gave the one-time sacrifice. You see Job's focus on sacrifice? He understands the idea of a payment for sin. 
And he's not casual about it. He's not making it a joke. Instead, he knows there needs to be a sacrifice. And, and when I mention understanding Job, you need to see the cross because here's a man who understood the idea of a sacrifice and the seriousness and the diligence required there. Job was focused and concerned about the spiritual well-being and growth of his family, which should prompt us to self-examination. How deep and detailed is your concern for the spiritual well-being of your household? How deep and detailed is your concern for the spiritual well-being of your household? Are we too busy convincing ourselves that all is okay? They're fine. They're fine. I get them into church. They're fine. They're fine. They're good. They're good. They're Christians. They believe like I believe. Are we fixated on just making them okay or diligently seeking and praying for the repentance and faith. And I want you to see in Job, and I've seen some commentators look at the kids and they start turning them into people who have sinned and don't care about it. And Job is great, but he's worried that his kids aren't great enough. And, and I think they've, they've completely misinterpreted what we're seeing here. What we're seeing is a man consumed with the spiritual being of his household a man that is teaching his children what it means to serve God and the best that he knows God. And we see him focused on the sacrifice for sin. And he's talking to each son, not, not quizzing them necessarily, but saying to each one, maybe you've done something that was arrogant or against God and you really need to know that atonement's required. And so the sons recognize the seriousness of their faith and their actions and their behavior and their belief. Thus begins our introduction to a man named Job, a man who will face indescribable suffering. But as we can see here, a man worthy to be emulated. What do you take away from this? I want you to understand who Job is, where he stands, that he is somebody whose character we would do well to emulate because that character will help us walk through the reality of life. Christopher Ash notes this, Job is a real believer, genuine in his integrity, upright in his relationships, pious in his worship, and penitent in his behavior. Here's what I scribbled down. Job was a real man who speaks to all humanity. Job was a truly religious man desiring to please God. Job was a great man with massive influence and wealth, a man devoted to his family and serious about their spiritual growth. He is a man who understands the sinfulness of humanity, a man who knows that only sacrifice can cover the sin of our hearts. He is a man whose life looks forward to the cross, to the permanent redemptive work of our Savior. He is a man about to be sorely tested, though his walk is noted to be one that's true towards God. His worship is of the true God, a man whose walk is going to prepare him for the greatest suffering faced by any human other than our Lord and Savior. Job's character will be stretched to the utmost. But as I'm sure you know, the final outcome is a man noted for his righteousness, Ezekiel. And by the way, he's noted for his patience in James 5, 11. So here is the question. Is your Christian character such that it could remain steadfast through the difficulty that Job walks through? Is your metal true enough to make it through what Job would have walked through? And the answer is in verses one through five. Do you look like Job looks? Because guess what? I hope we're not arrogant enough to just give ourselves that quality, but instead 
true enough to seek to be in that category? Is our Christian character steadfast enough that on the other side of this immense difficulty, you would be considered righteous? And then two, do we have or desire the spiritual character of Job? Let's pray together. Father, thank for this opportunity we have to come to you. As we embark on a difficult book, uh, one that doesn't necessarily um, put you on cloud nine, help us to understand the reason for it in your holy scriptures. That you gave us the story of Job because it's supposed to form us. It's supposed to deepen us. It's supposed to plant a foundation in our lives so that as we walk through reality, we do so in a way that glorifies you, points to your salvation, and shows that there's more to life than the things of this earth. Give us all the fortitude. Give us the desire, if we lack it, to be like Job. To see his character described, here is a man who is wealthy, influential. He, he, he taps into so much of what all of us end up doing in life, a businessman, a farmer. He's basically a genius when it comes to handling finances. Yet he's a man dedicated to the spiritual well-being of his household who put a priority on worship and put a priority on fearing his God. Give us One, the desire to be like that, and then the fortitude to build that character in our lives. In your precious and holy name, amen.